We'll be looking at verses 22 through 42 of John 10 this morning. And it's a fairly lengthy passage of Scripture, so I'm going to read this in smaller sections so that we can kind of stay contained. There's a a lot in here. There's some things that are very um, unusual, and we'll take some time to articulate what these are. But this is, in John's Gospel, the final public teaching in Jesus' three-plus years of ministry. This will be the last public discourse that he provides. Most of the remainder of the Gospel to John will deal with his teaching to those who believe in him, We'll see in John chapter 11, the raising of Lazarus from the dead. We'll see the time he spends in his home with Mary and Martha, the sisters. And then we'll see in John 12, 12, the triumphal entry and then the journey to Calvary and all that takes place in these final days of Jesus' life. So we're going to begin in seven sections, as you can see in your sermon outline. And the first one we're going to observe this morning is the setting. We'll take a look at the setting that this takes place in. We'll read verses 22 and 23. At that time, the Feast of Dedication took place in Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the portico of Solomon. So the first thing that we see in this setting is that this is taking place at the Feast of Dedication, sometimes called the Feast of Lights, but it is modern-day Hanukkah. You've heard of Hanukkah. I don't know what you know about Hanukkah. But the Feast of Dedication is two months past the Feast of Tabernacle that we spent so much time in, in John 9 and then into 10. And so this is a time stamp for us in understanding where Jesus is in his progress of going to the cross. We know that the Feast of Tabernacles takes place in the winter in the the, the Jewish month of Chislev. And so it's winter, it's rainy, it's cold outside, and so this is a time stamp, and we know that in the spring at the Passover is when Jesus is going to make his way back to Jerusalem and then to the cross. So that's probably three to four months away. But this Feast of Dedication was not a biblically mandated feast. It doesn't appear anywhere in the Old Testament. The three major feasts that we've talked about and looked at before were biblically mandated by God. But this feast began in the intertestamental period between the closing of the Old Testament and the arrival of John and Jesus on the scene. In 175 B.C., King Antiochus Epiphanes, who was the king of Syria, came to rule... And in 170 B.C., he captured Jerusalem. He was a lover of Greek culture, and he began the process of trying to Hellenize Palestine in that area. But when he captured Jerusalem, the first thing that he did was he desecrated the temple by sacrificing a pig on the altar. He set up a pagan altar in its place, and then he erected a statue of Zeus and the place of the Holy of Holies. Now, if you know anything about Jewish culture, that was about the worst thing you could ever do, is to desecrate the temple in the way that Antiochus emphatically did. As he attempted to systematically stamp out Judaism, he brutally oppressed the Jews, who tenaciously clung to their religion, trying to maintain their culture and their heritage and their religious practice. Under his rules, the Jews were required to offer sacrifices to pagan gods. They were not allowed to own or read any portion of the Old Testament. Any copy of it would be destroyed. They were not allowed to practice the, um, the observance of the Sabbath. They were not allowed to circumcise the children. 
It is told by Josephus, the Jewish historian, that around 80,000 people were killed and another 80 to 100,000 people were sold into slavery. If desecrating the temple wasn't enough, Antiochus also made the temple a prostitute's den, which means that was the place to go in Jerusalem if you wanted to have a relationship with a prostitute. So after a couple of years of this, there was a priest by the name of Matthias and his son Judas Maccabeus, which is a name you've probably heard before. They finally said, enough is enough, and they began a grassroots revolt effort. And it took a period of three years for Jerusalem to be freed. And when Jerusalem was freed in 164 B.C., they cleansed the temple They rededicated it to the Lord, and this was the birth of the Feast of Dedication, and it was commemorated in Jewish homes with the lighting of lights, which is why it was also called the Feast of Lights. Now, if you remember from the Feast of Tabernacles, that was a looking back at God's faithfulness. It was a celebration of all that God had done for them. But this particular feast, the Feast of Dedication, was forward-looking at the time when the Messiah was going to arrive and he would exact political independence within the Roman rule that they knew and loathed. And so in their minds, when the Messiah was going to come, he was going to establish this political independence that they long and sought after. And this is what the Feast of Dedication was all about. So we also see that Jesus is walking in the covering of the portico of Solomon because it was winter, cold and rainy, and it gives you an indication of where this discourse is going to take place, and that's important as we get through this a little bit later. So it taking place in the winter, some believe that this is a a commentary on the spiritual state of Israel, but also this is Jesus' fulfillment of him being what the Feast of Dedication was looking forward to. Just as when he came into the Feast of the Tabernacle and declared himself to be the light of the world, Jesus was saying, I am fulfilling all that the Feast of Tabernacles is about. So this is what's taking place here in this setting as it relates to this passage. The second thing we're going to notice here is the question that he's going to be asked by the religious leaders who have gathered around him. Verse 24, the Jews then gathered around him and were saying to him, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Now, very subtly in this verbiage here is the word gathered around. The word gathered around means to encircle or to surround. This is not a friendly gathering. This isn't a group of people who are sitting at the Master's feet, listening to His every word. This is a position of battle. It is the same word that is used in Hebrews 11, when the writer of Hebrews is celebrating the hall of faith, and he says in verse 30 of that chapter, By faith the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. So these Jewish leaders who have gathered around Jesus have done so in a threatening way, and they have a very specific goal in mind. But before they get to that goal, they ask the question, Are you the Christ? They use the word here, tell us plainly, and that word plainly means to state publicly if you are really the Christ. Far from being an honest question in an effort to seek information about Jesus, their goal was simply to trap him 
so that they could hopefully arrest him and try him and then do away with him. Now, what's interesting here is that they have seen his ministry, they have heard his teaching for three plus years, and they pretend to not understand all that Jesus has said and all that Jesus has done in his earthly ministry. The question was designed to get Jesus to make an open public claim to be the Messiah, which he has not done. If you go back and look at all the encounters that Jesus has with the religious leadership, never does he say, I am the Messiah. He allows other people to articulate who they think he is. He did disclose to the woman at the well in Samaria that he was the Messiah. He did disclose in Matthew chapter 16 to his disciples that he was in fact the Messiah. But even though he did not say that he was the Messiah directly, he repeated quite frequently that he claimed to have equality with God. We'll just run through a few verses that we've looked at in the book of John so far. John 5.18 For this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because he not only was breaking the Sabbath, but also was calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. If you remember... This is very early in Jesus' ministry after he healed the paralytic man at the pool of Bethsaida and told him to take his mat. So very early in Jesus' ministry, there is this understanding that Jesus is claiming equality with God and they didn't like it and they wanted to kill him because of that. John 8.12, when Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. John 8.24 I told you that you would die in your sins. If you do not believe that I am the one I claim to be, you will indeed die in your sins. And then finally, John 8.58 I tell you the truth. Jesus answered before Abraham was born, I am. Those words are not convoluted. They're not veiled. They are very clearly... Jesus claiming to be equal with God, even though he has not publicly, in a Jewish setting, said that he was, in fact, the long-awaited Messiah. Now, you don't have to be super smart to understand that you can put two and two together, and you're going to get four, right? Well, they're pretending like they're putting all the pieces together, but they still need more information, but they're trying to trap him. So notice Jesus' response here in our Roman numeral three. We see this in verses 25 and 26. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe, the works that I do in my Father's name, these testify of me. But you do not believe because you are not of my sheep. Now again, we revisit a little bit of the Good Shepherd motif, very closely connected to the previous discourse on the Good Shepherd. But in his response, Jesus is going to say three things. First of all, he's going to say, Believe my words. Verse 25a, I have told you, and you do not believe. I can almost hear a tone of exasperation that over and over and over, they continue to ask the same questions, and Jesus, knowing the hearts of all men, know what their motive is, and yet here he is again trying to explain to them who he is and consistently who he has claimed to be from the very beginning. There is not a lack of information on the part of the religious leaders, but there is a lack of faith and there's certainly a lack of repentance and needing to come to Jesus for the cleansing of their sin. You know, it's the same issue in our world today. There isn't a lack of information about the person of Christ, the words of Christ, the claims of Christ, 
or the works of Christ. You and I live in a very privileged time to have a completed revelation of God to man which so clearly tells us who Jesus is, that He was sent here by the predetermined plan of God to become the sacrifice and the ransom for the sins of mankind so that in love, by grace through faith, we could become the children of God. But you talk to people on the street and they act like they don't know who Jesus is. They act like they have no idea what the cross is about. Now, they may not be able to articulate it and explain it and intellectually or with a great deal of depth, but who Jesus is and what Jesus has done is not a mystery. There's not a lack of information, but there is a lack of faith and repentance in submitting themselves to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Very early in Jesus' ministry, he explained the primary reason why people would not place their faith in him and would instead reject him and never come for repentance of sin. If you remember in this dialogue that he had with Nicodemus in John chapter 3, verses 19 and 21, this is the judgment that the light has come into the world and men love the darkness rather than the light for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light. You'll notice that as capitalized, meaning that's the person of Christ. And does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But he who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifested as having, having been wrought in God. This is the reason why people don't come to Christ. Not because there isn't any information. Not because they don't have enough information. It's because they prefer to live in the temporary pleasure of sin as opposed to having their need and their sinfulness exposed by the light. Jesus says, believe my words. But if you don't believe my words, number two, believe my works. Verse 25b, the works that I do in my Father's name, these testify of me. Now when you look at the body of work that Christ has completed in his ministry, how could anybody observe that objectively and question that he had the power of God, that he had been sent by God, and that he was doing the work of God. He healed the sick. He cast out demons. He raised the dead. He cured the blind. He fed the crowds. And these religious leaders were completely aware of what Jesus had been doing during his three plus years of ministry. We'll get to this in just a few months in John 11, verse 47. Therefore, the chief priests and the Pharisees convened a council and were saying, what are we doing for this man is performing many signs. They had no way to refute it. They had no way to undo it. They couldn't really explain it. They were unwilling to acknowledge that it came from God and that Jesus was sent by God. They didn't need more miracles, but they just need to believe. And then Jesus responds and explains to them why they don't believe. Number three, because they are not his sheep. Verse 26, but you do not believe because you are not my sheep. And so again, we get the tension introduced between the doctrine of election and man's need to respond individually to this call of salvation. From the perspective of human responsibility, the hostile Jews did not respond because they had deliberately rejected the truth. But from the divine standpoint, 
with the viewpoint of divine sovereignty, they did not believe because they were not his sheep, which were given to him by the Father. John MacArthur explains it this way, a full understanding of exactly how those two realities, human responsibility and divine sovereignty work together, lies beyond human comprehension, but there is no difficulty with them in the infinite mind of God. Significantly, the Bible does not attempt to harmonize them, nor does it apologize for the logical tension between them. Then he uses an example of Judas Iscariot, the one that betrayed Jesus. He says this, Jesus said in Luke 22:22, the Son of Man is going to be betrayed as it has been determined. The predetermined plan of God that Jesus was going to be betrayed by one of his own. In other words, Judas's betrayal of Christ, I'm sorry, uh, the, yeah, in other words, Judas, Judas's betrayal of Christ was in accord with God's eternal purpose. But then Jesus added these words, Woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. That Judas's betrayal was part of God's plan did not relieve him of the responsibility for the crime. That's what MacArthur says. That's how he explains this tension between divine sovereignty and human responsibility. As we think about that, as we look at that, as we look at other things that create in our minds a tension of paradox, we need to relax and trust in the sovereignty of God because it all makes sense to him and we don't need to get wrung out about what it actually means. Now, Jesus very briefly repeats some of what he said in the last discourse as it relates to his being the good shepherd. So we come to Roman numeral 4 here. Notice the promises that Jesus restates about his sheep. Verses 27 through 30. He says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Verse 30, I and the Father are one. In these few verses, we see seven promises that Jesus makes to those that are his sheep. Number one, his sheep Hear his voice. 27a, my sheep hear my voice. Remember in the Good Shepherd parable, Jesus would go to the sheepfold and he would call out from the sheepfold and his sheep would come to himself, representing the nation of Judaism or the nation of Israel. And those that were of his sheep would come out. They would hear his voice, meaning that they would believe. It's not the response to an audible tone. It is a faith decision to follow the shepherd that is calling them. So this indicates that his sheep believe in him. They have a faith in him, a confidence in him, a trust in him for their salvation. Number two, he knows his sheep. If you remember from the Good Shepherd discourse, he calls them by name. He doesn't just say, here, sheepy, sheepy. He says, Joe and Mary and Bill and Mike and Tom, come on out. And they come. He knows them by name. It means that there is, between the sheep and the shepherd, a personal relationship. You know, there are so many quote-unquote religions in this world who describe the God that they worship as distant, as angry, as unconcerned, as punishing There's no semblance of love or grace or goodness or mercy or kindness or generosity. 
But that's not how we know our God. He is a personal God, and you and I have been given a privilege to have a personal relationship with the God of the universe. What an incredible promise, and what a great blessing it is of ours to know Him as the Good Shepherd. Number three, His sheep follow Him, 27C, and they follow me. It means that when the shepherd calls, whether it be to salvation or to confession and repentance, it means that the sheep obey. We submit our will to His will. We no longer live an egocentric world, but we live a Christocentric world. He is on the throne. He is the one that sets the course of our life. And it is our responsibility as His children, and in this analogy as His sheep, to follow Him. And His sheep will follow Him and Him alone. If you remember the discourse about the Good Shepherd, they won't follow any shepherd. They're only going to follow their shepherd, meaning we are only to follow Jesus as our Lord and Savior. Number four, His sheep have eternal life. Verse 28a, And I give eternal life to them. You and I, as the children of God, will live forever in the presence of God. We have been known by God from eternity past. And we have this incredible future ahead of us to live in His presence, no longer in the presence of sin, we get to see Him as He really is, worship Him in fullness of truth and spirit, forever and forever and forever. You and I are the forever people of God. Number five, He gives this life. It isn't something that we earn. It isn't something that we deserve. There's not anything that we can do for ourselves. It is simply a gift of grace that God gives to us God didn't look down and say, you know, I I need a guy like that on my team. He didn't say, she's such a wonderful woman, I need a girl like that on my team. That's not what God said at all. You and I are thoroughly sinful. We are absolutely, completely riddled with the power of sin, needing to pay the consequence of sin, until the moment we come to Christ. We can never call to Him on our own. He gives to us the ability to do that. And in doing that, He gives us this great gift of grace, eternal life. Number six, His sheep never perish. 28b, and they will never perish. If any of His sheep perish, then the life He gives isn't eternal And if any of the sheep perish, then that means God isn't truthful and faithful to His Word. It means there's something wrong with the promises that God has made. Number seven, His sheep are secure. Verse 29, My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. He is the Good Shepherd who protects His sheep, And we are His sheep, not only, and we as His sheep, not only rest in the protection of Jesus, but in the Father, who Jesus says is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. He has secured our salvation for all of eternity. Our salvation doesn't rest in our ability to live up to the greatness of the gift, though we should try to, 
but it rests in God's ability to preserve it. I remember when I was a little boy and I would visit with my grandfather. I'd sit in his lap and he would put a coin in his hand and he would say, you can get the coin out, you can have it. And he'd clench his hand tight. And I could not get a finger to move up enough to even see the quarter. And as long as I struggled and as much as I wrestled, I would try and try and try to get the coin out of his hand and I just couldn't do it. He would eventually open his hand and give it to me. It was great fun. In the same way, God, the creator of this universe, the all-powerful God, holds His people in His hand, and there is not anything or anyone that can pry us out of His hand. Not the great archenemy Satan himself can get us out of the Father's hand. You stand secure in your salvation for all of eternity, and if you could lose it, then God can't protect it. And that would mean that he's not God and this promise isn't true. Jesus says in verse 30, I and the Father are one. Another clear declaration that Jesus is claiming to have equality with God. Now, in this instance, the word one here doesn't mean a singular person. The word means one substance or one essence. What Jesus is saying is that I and the Father are of the same essence What he means is that we are unified in our will and they are unified in their commitment to preserve the sheep that the Father has given to the Son, meaning you and I rest forever secure in God's hand. There is unity and purpose and action, and that's what Jesus says, means when he says, I and the Father are one. He's not trying to up the ante on his deity, he simply stating that he and the Father are in union as it comes to securing the sheep forever and forever and forever. Now, Roman number 5. Notice the rejection by the Jewish leaders. Verse 31. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. So they try to stone him. He answers the question they ask. This is the fourth time in the Gospel of John that it's recorded that they attempted to stone him. The question is, where did they get the stones? You see, they're in the portico of Solomon's temple. If you know anything about the temple, it constantly had people in it. It was neat and clean and tidy. It wasn't like the pathways out in the wilderness where there would be rocks and thorns and thistles. This is the inside of the temple. And if you remember what I said earlier, that when they gathered around him, they encircled him. They already had the stones in their hands. The word picked up literally means to carry. When they came into Solomon's portico with the intent of gathering around Jesus, they already had the rocks in their hands and they had a goal in mind and that was to kill Jesus. Now they didn't have the authority to execute on their own, but they would very likely have drug him out of the temple, had a makeshift trial like they'll have in a few months, and then put him to death. It shows that their question posed to Jesus, tell us plainly, are you the Christ, was not an honest question. It was a loaded question, and they were ready to unload once they got the answer that they expected to get. Now, Roman numeral 6, notice the challenge that Jesus issues back to them as a result of this stoning attempt. Verses 32 through 38. 
Jesus answered them, I showed you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you stoning me? The Jews answered him, For a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy, and because you, being a man, make yourself out to be God. And Jesus answered them, Has it not been written in your law, I said, You are God's? If he called them gods, to whom the word of God came and the scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father sanctified and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said, I am the Son of God? That's kind of complicated to follow. We'll get to that in a minute. If I do not do the works of my Father, do not believe me. But if I do them, though you do not believe me, believe the works, so that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I in the Father. So in the face of this murderous rage, you can almost envision the, the, the rocks being cocked and ready to go, Jesus very calmly asks the question, why is it that you, that you want to stone me? Which of my good works are you intending to stone me for? So his works were his proof of his oneness with God, Because nobody could do the things that Jesus did if God was not with him. So his works were proof of this oneness and he's forcing them to consider his body of miraculous deeds. It's a call to consider them objectively and then come to the conclusion that he actually is who he claims to be. That he actually does have equality with God the Father. Verse 33, the Jew, verse 33, the Jews answered him, For good work we not, do not stone you, but for blasphemy, and because you, being a man, make yourself out to be God. This was the consistent claim they made against Jesus, was that he was guilty of, of blasphemy, which is a claim to be God. So their minds have already been made up. There was no need to really ask the question. It was just a pretense to try to get an excuse to hurt him. What's interesting is that they accuse this mere man of claiming to be God, but the reverse is actually true. He is God who humbled himself and became a mere man to die for the world. We read this in Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 through 8, talking about Jesus, who, all, who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men, being, ba- being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. They claim you're a mere man claiming to be God, but he's actually God in the person of a mere man. So he asks this question, he challenges them and says, what about your law? He's not detaching himself from the law, but if you remember, the religious leaders placed all of their hope in the law. It was that law that defined them. It defined their understanding of God. It involved every part of the religious experience. And so what Jesus is saying is, what about your law, the very law that you cling to, verse 34, has it not been written in your law, I said you are God. This is where it gets to be a little bit confusing, so you have to go back and figure out what Jesus is talking about here. So when he says the law, he's talking about the entirety of the Old Testament, not just the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. He's talking about everything. And so this is a quote from Psalm 82, 6, which says, "You, God speaking, I said you are gods and all of you are sons 
of the Most High. So when God says you are God's, he's speaking to the judges who were given the authority and the ability to rule over the people. These judges or these rulers are called the sons of the Most High by God Himself in the great assembly of the nation of Israel. In the same way, they would call themselves sons of God, right? And that is what Jesus, in a sense, is calling Himself. I am also just a son of God. Now, He is the Son of God, but there's consistency in, <coughs> excuse me, in others having that same title. So, in the Old Testament, there were certain judges that were set to rule over Israel. They were to effect justice on behalf of God before the people. They had the responsibility of judging the nation of Israel, and they were like magistrates. They judged in the place of God, who was the supreme judge. The supreme judge. So, God would speak to these judges, give them His word, And His word can't be broken. So any justice that they did was God's justice. Any judgment they gave was God's judgment. Any rebellion against them was rebellion against God. This is what Jesus is calling to their mind by quoting Psalm 82, verse 6. They ruled in the place of God, and so they were called in the Old Testament, little g, gods. It's a term that means authority or rule. And so the term gods, with the little g, referred then to those judges of Israel. He goes on to say in verse 35 and 36, So if he, God the Father, called them gods, to whom the word of God came, God giving them inspiration, and the scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him the Father, of, of him whom the Father sanctified, this is Jesus talking about himself now, Do you say of him, Jesus, whom the Father sanctified and sent in the world, his divine mission, you are blaspheming because I said, I am the Son of God. So Jesus is basically saying, why is this blasphemous? Back in Psalm 82, 6, God called the rulers of Israel little g-gods and declared that they were sons of the Most High, sons of God. I'm doing the same thing. I am a son of God. So God is the one who called these judges to service. God is the one who sent Jesus into the world. God gave them this title. God placed upon Jesus the title of King of Kings and Lord of Lords. God revealed His Word to the judges and the rulers. Jesus is the Word become flesh. Jesus says, I am claiming the same thing, although Jesus would use big G God, not a little G God. And He basically asks them, why am I wrong Why am I being accused of blasphemy when the same thing happened with the judges of Israel? He's not trying to add any evidence to his deity. He's simply calling to their attention their overreaction to Jesus calling himself the Son of God. Again, his logic is indisputable. But he goes on and asks them to consider his works. Verse 37 and 38. If I don't do the works of the Father, then don't believe me. But if I do them, though you do not believe me, believe the works, so that you may know and understand that the Father is in me, and I in the Father. If they would objectively consider, again, the body of work that Jesus had completed in his earthly ministry, objectively, they could come to only one conclusion. Again, he has been sent by God. If you don't believe my words, just look at the works And believe in them so that you can understand that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. But their bias and their preconceived ideas 
were so deeply rooted in their lives, they were prevented from ever considering the objectivity of what Jesus has done in his ministry. Lastly, Roman numeral 7. Notice the results of this exchange. Verses 39 through 42. Therefore they were seeking again to seize him, and he eluded their grasp. And he went away again beyond the Jordan to the place where John was first baptizing, and he was staying there. Many came to him and were saying, While John performed no sign, yet everything John said about this man was true. Many believed in him there. As always, there's only two responses to Jesus. One is to reject him, as the religious leaders had done again. They sought to seize him, to grasp him, to drag him away, to stone him because of what they would understand to be blasphemy. But Jesus eluded their grip. His time had not yet come. His journey to the cross was set by the Father in eternity past, and there was not anybody that could ever affect that. Not his brothers in the beginning of the Gospel of John, and not these religious leaders who were trying now to end his life. So Jesus slips away. It tells us in verse 40 that he went away again beyond the Jordan. He went to Bethany, where John's public ministry as the forerunner to Christ began. And so he goes back to that area. He's leaving Jerusalem. He won't come back until the triumphal entry in John 12. But the other response to Christ is to receive him. Verse 41, many came to him and were saying, well, John performed no sign, yet everything John said about this man was true, and many believed in him there. Many came to Christ... And believed in him. Although John never performed any miracle to validate the claims that he was making about Christ, these people didn't need the miracles. They simply looked at the body of work of Christ and they believed in him. They placed their faith in the Messiah as the religious leaders of the nation of Israel should have but would never do. And so Jesus' public ministry is now closed as it relates to the Gospel of John. He will still have interactions with other people, but most of his time and attention will be spent on those who are devoted to him. And then, of course, Passion Week and the trials and the journey to the cross. This rejection of the religious leaders is a foreshadowing of the ultimate rejection that will come in just a few short months when these people will successfully lead the crowd into the chant of crucify Crucify. Crucify. Thinking again about the sheep. The promises that God has made to us. We focus on that. The greatness of the God that we serve. The fact that God loves us so much. He never had to do what He did, but He did it anyway. And you and I stand in the grace of God, knowing that we've been called to salvation, that we can know Him personally, that we have this expectation to follow Him, that He's going to lead us and feed us and protect us. Now think about the tragedies that we have in our world, but think about the uncertainty that you and I face in our lives. We get distraught over health. We get racked with worry over people that we love. And what you and I need to remember is that we can rest in the sovereignty of God knowing that He's in control and He will continue to work all things together for the good of those who love Him and are called according to His purposes. Can you rest in His sovereignty today?
Can you take great pleasure in knowing that He is your good shepherd? Let's bow our heads and pray. Father, you are great. You are faithful and kind and loving and generous. You give out of an abundance of your glory, overflowing. And we give you thanks for that. We pray that you would continue to remind us, especially in times of distress, of how good and faithful you are, that we would be reminded of your eternal presence by the Holy Spirit who indwells us. Father, would those realities bring to us peace and joy, knowing that we rest securely in your hand and nothing and no one can ever take us out of your hand. God, free us up to celebrate all that you've done and all that you are as as revealed to us in your word. We give you thanks and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing about the greatness of our God.